Hey, it's Sean. I just want to jump in early here to say that the topic of today's podcast is going to be what we talk about at the next Humanizing Healthcare Expert series. I'll have registration information for you at the end of the program. Just know that if you get intrigued, there's going to be a way to dig in deeper with our guests coming up in June. There's a problem with providing quality health care in rural communities. No one talks about it much, but the pandemic provided a glimpse at a solution, an opportunity in the midst of a crisis. Good morning. I'm Eric Carpenter, and this is KCVL KCRK. You know, I was looking around eastern Washington yesterday afternoon. Well, you're the reason I'm riding around on recap tires. The risk factors for health disparities are huge. So it's not just geographic isolation and lower socioeconomic status, a higher rate of health risk behaviors, but it's traveling, significant distances to treatment, and frankly, there's just not access to specialists and sometimes even primary care. We get to see patients with higher needs. I get to bring my team in when I see that there's a need that we can't meet locally. For me, that helped me find a place in nursing where my heart could be in it. I could spend more time with my patients. And instead of my patients having to leave the county and travel maybe 70 or 80 miles to talk about palliative care, we were bringing the team to them, maybe bedside, maybe over Zoom, maybe over conference calls, but we're bringing a specialty team to the patients in their rooms. You know, I think one of the blessings of this whole pandemic is that the online Teams application has been able to enhance our rural communication because The pharmacist may be at St. Joe's and we may be talking about a patient up at Mount Carmel. The IDT meetings are invaluable for obviously patient care, but also to gel as a team. That is one thing that has been really powerful here in Stevens County is that this team is cohesive. They're loving. They inform each other. They learn from each other. They know when somebody's in distress or struggling, you know, for whatever reason, and are able to provide that care and support to their teammates. On today's program, getting palliative care everywhere it's needed. Rural America makes up at least 20% of the United States population, and the risk factors for health disparities are huge. In rural Stevens County, Washington, a team of caregivers is at work on a demonstration project. Would using telehealth technologies, Zoom and conference calls paired with bedside consults, would that hybrid model improve access to palliative care and in turn improve quality of life? Telepalliative care is a new initiative that we've launched that really looks at providing access to subspecialty palliative care to patients in critical access hospitals that don't have the capacity to be able to support a full-time, full interdisciplinary palliative care team. But by using technology, we're able to provide services to be able to discuss what matters to patients and families from afar. 
Coming up, stories of how a groundbreaking telepalliative care project came to be. Hi, everybody. This is the Hear Me Now podcast that comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Glad you could join us today. We have a whole slew of guests on the program, all with roles in the telepalliative care, or you may hear it referred to as telepc demonstration project that's underway in Stevens County, Washington. A few minutes ago, you heard from Amber Moody, the palliative care nurse at Providence Mount Carmel Hospital in Colville, Washington, and from Kelly Corcoran, who is the chief mission officer there in Colville. We're going to circle back to them in a little bit. We'll also hear from Drs. Ira Bayak and Matt Gonzalez. But first, I want to introduce you to three other caregivers involved in the project. Greg Vandekeef is a palliative care physician and clinical ethicist at the Providence St. Peter Hospital in Olympia. Dr. Vandekeef is also the executive medical director for the Palliative Practice Group at the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Kevin Murphy is a palliative care physician and executive director of the Palliative Practice Group and TelePC at the Providence Institute for Human Caring. And A.D. Goldberg is a licensed clinical social worker and the TelePC social worker for the demonstration project. Dr. Goldberg's dissertation focused on delivering palliative care in rural communities. I want to thank all three of you for taking the time to talk with me about the project today. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you, Sean. Glad to be here, Sean. Thank you. Let's start with the basics. Uh, One of you tell me how this idea got moved forward in the past two years. Yeah, Kevin and I had spent... This is Dr. Vandekeef. ...a couple of years working on developing a telepalliative care option prior to the pandemic. And once the pandemic hit... Since so many practices were converting to virtual care, uh, it really accelerated the work that we had already been doing. And so we were able to then transition fairly quickly to delivering palliative care to the critical access hospitals we're serving in eastern Washington. Greg, help us with the terms of art here. Uh, Critical access hospital is a smaller, more remote hospital, right? Yeah, critical access hospitals, by definition, are 25 beds or less. They tend to be in rural communities, a minimum of 30 miles or more to a a larger referral center. And so it's very much a rural community um, entity. And so we've been uh, providing coverage, specialty palliative care coverage, to two critical access hospitals in eastern Washington. Dr. Goldberg, what's your memory of how this project got moved on to the front burner? Well, I typically am late to the party, and I was late to this party as well. Um, And Greg and I served on a statewide panel for rural palliative care groups around, um, around Washington. And Greg mentioned that this initiative was beginning, and I sent him a message in the chat and said, if you're hiring a social worker, reach out to me. And so, um, He immediately did, and I have been with the program since the pilot started in Stevens County, which is the pilot area. So you've got this project, uh, you've got it funded, you're in the middle of a pandemic. At some point, I'm guessing, you look at it and think, 
this should have some legs. This is working. It's serving our community well. I'm guessing at that, but am I far off? We thought from the beginning that this was something that would have legs. This is Dr. Murphy. We didn't expect this to be a short-term pandemic-only service level. It was just a matter of getting it out there and showing it to everybody, hence the name, The Demonstration Project. And the, the launch in two small critical access hospitals was just for that purpose. Providence is a very large system. We have 52 hospitals in seven states across the Western United States. But just as a kind of reference point, Greg mentioned the critical access hospitals that sit in rural communities and the general accepted number is that there are about 20% of the United States population lives in the rural communities. There are just over 1300 critical access hospitals in the United States and they struggle simply to meet the needs in their communities. They struggle on a daily basis. Last year, uh, 17, I think. No, that's not correct. Last year, 181 hospitals closed. And that number's not right either. Let me try that again. Last year, 37 critical access hospitals closed. 181 have closed since 2005. But what we did is we looked at our system and we have 17 either rural or really small critical access hospitals where palliative care just is not an option. And we knew that that was a gap. We have very large hospitals. We have a lot of medium, middle-sized hospitals. And then we've got the 17 that were out there with no options. And palliative care is a specialty. And I'll let Greg speak more to this as the expert. It works better when it is engaged earlier in the trajectory of illness. It works better when we can provide it to the patients long before decisions are made for them or treatments are provided to them. And so reaching out to the critical access hospital where these patients are sitting, where questions are being asked, decisions are being made, it made more sense for us to be part of that initial conversation. And so bridging that gap to these 17 hospitals was the intention, starting out with the two that sit here in Washington so many of our hospitals just simply don't have the resources to stand up a specialty palliative care team. And so being able to um, have the palliative care physician and social worker virtually support the nurses, chaplains, hospitalists on the ground in these critical access hospitals has, has been a way to bring specialty services that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. And so from our standpoint, that's also an equity issue because um, people in urban or suburban communities generally have access to specialty palliative care. And so this is a way of, of through telehealth, providing specialty palliative care to people in rural communities as well. So what I understood from hearing Amber and Kelly describe their work, the issue of access is multifaceted in that there aren't enough providers to go around and cover smaller, more remote, critical access hospitals. But then from the patient and family point of view, if you do want to take advantage of palliative care consults, it may mean traveling 70 or 80 or 100 miles 
to go have a meeting with, uh, uh, with a care provider. And unfortunately, the technology itself is an equity issue because many of these folks in rural communities don't have internet, um, live off the grid. And so what we are learning is that the hospital, be- the local hospital, becomes a central place where many of them can finally access the internet and technology. Um, but we are, you are right, we are seeing families. We've interviewed, uh, we've had families join us from Nova Scotia. We've connected people in Australia to see their father. So yes, it does offer access in a way that we hadn't anticipated, but also presented um, a realization of the problem with internet in rural communities. One of the things that we've found is that people are accustomed to FaceTiming with their grandchildren <laughs> and doing things where, for for many of the families we're involved with, uh, the technology isn't as new as it might be. Uh, there There is issues with high-speed internet in the homes, um, with bandwidth issues, but we, we have found that there are times that telephonic interactions are preferred. Um, some people live far enough off the grid that um, getting a video interaction just isn't going to work, but joining by telephone does work. And and then just really recognizing that this this is a matter of bringing the care to the people where they are, as opposed to making them come in to get the care. And for many people, that has really worked well. And in addition to serving the the patients who are in a critical access hospital, being able to have their families join us on telehealth interactions. Um, people from Canada, people from Alaska, people from all over the U.S. have participated in, in the consults that AD and I have been doing. And in the time of COVID, it, with limited visitation in the hospital, it really amplified family access in a way that um, we hadn't anticipated. Tell me a couple stories. What does the encounter at the bedside look like physically? Well, we're just about to do a presentation that says dairy cows complicate schedules. And so most of our referrals um, are patients who are rural. And so the patient is identified by the referring consulting hospitalist, the physician in the critical access hospital, and Amber, the palliative nurse on the ground. And Greg and I won't be able to emphasize enough how important it is to have that champion in the community grounded within the hospital. So Amber will hear the recommendation. She will call me uh, and say, here's what we've got. This is one I think we can handle ourselves, don't need you. Or this is one that is complex and we are gonna need you. And then Greg and I do some schedule shuffling And we are looking for a time that he can meet and I can meet. And then we go back to Amber and she finds out when the family can meet. And then we set on a schedule time. An invitation to a Zoom link that's encrypted is sent to Greg, to Amber, to any family family members who are going to be involved in the case. And then we meet. And how we meet is they have gone through many iterations from an iPad to now a really lovely computer with amplified sound and mic, because oftentimes the oxygen in the room is so noisy, we need a better sound system to hear the patient and for the patient to hear us. And so the cart is wheeled in, 
and the interview begins, usually with um, the family teaching us what they know already, and then Greg filling in the blanks um, and being able to answer the medical questions that are related to the patient's diagnosis. So a sample one, we have three off the grid that come to mind, you know, three families that have lived off the grid. Uh, one of them was a preschool teacher who had cancer, had not been in touch with her stepson in years, lived isolated. Um, the conversation was that they were going to transfer her to Spokane. Um, she did not necessarily want to be transferred to Spokane. So we were able to reach out to her son, who she hadn't seen in years, who in fact was her designated decision maker if she wasn't able to. He was able to reconnect and see his stepmom, which was a huge gift from this process, mm -hmm. and help us make the decision with her to transfer her to comfort measures so she did not have to be transferred to Spokane. What was beautiful about this one was that her church arranged for around-the-clock care so that she was not alone in her final days. Had she been transferred to Spokane, she would have died alone. And she would have not made that connection with her son. And interestingly enough, which is true for many, many of our cases, Amber had a relationship with this patient. Um, she was at one point one of her children's teachers. Mm -hmm. So in addition to having her church involved, the students in the school all drew pictures and they were hanging in her hospital room. So we had not only her church present with her, but her students' artwork present with her. That's sweet. Something that I hadn't expected, Sean, was just how personal video interactions can be. Um, doing in-person care, I, I expected the video interactions to not have the same emotional mm -hmm. resonance. But what Aidy and I have found is when we have the nurse and the chaplain on site together with the patient and the two of us as a physician and social worker coming in virtually, it doesn't overwhelm the patient the way it would to have four different people walk into their room. Mm -hmm. You know, they have one or two people and then the others are on an iPad or on a, a laptop and that feels a little less intrusive. And yet we can have really profound and meaningful interactions even through the virtual means and, and, getting patients to do a little bit of a deeper dive into what are they hoping for as they look at their future living with serious illness and what are the treatment alternatives and how can we make sure that the treatments provided are aligned with what they're hoping for. And we've been able to do that at levels that go beyond anything I had anticipated. So it's been well, a very rewarding experience. I would imagine that the technology in some way facilitates some frank discussion because you don't have the same social pressure of being face-to-face -face with someone. You know, that's something that we've really seen in the world of telepsychiatry, which uh, has worked much better than I would have predicted, that people sometimes feel less inhibited speaking to someone via a virtual interface, you know, computer screen or an iPad, than they would if they were in the physical presence of the other person. 
And so often those lowered inhibitions open people up and allow them to speak in ways that maybe they wouldn't if you were there in person. So Greg, that reminds me of the case that we had of a man who um, wanted to go home and, and everybody was saying he had mental health issues and he didn't have capacity. And you know, when the hospital team went out to his home, it didn't have electricity, it didn't have running water. And so they decided that the man didn't have competency, that he was making these decisions based on um, a lack of an ability to recognize the severity of his case. Uh, when Greg and I joined him, he, he actually did understand the consequences of his decisions and understood the difficulty. He was in a motorized wheelchair. He said he'd crawl to the bathroom if he needed to crawl. Um, he had crawled uh, and he wanted a caregiver and he was going to continue to drink and he wanted a caregiver that would be able to get him his alcohol um, when he wanted it. And he was very clear about it all. And so our role was twofold. One was to align with his clear preferences, but also what we have learned is that we've provided a lot of assistance with the moral distress of the caregivers at the hospital system. We participate mm -hmm. in twice weekly interdisciplinary team meetings, and Greg and I have been able to ease their burden as well in helping them understand that even though this patient was making decisions we necessarily wouldn't have made for him, um, they had provided beautiful care. And when I was talking to Amber about it recently, she says that still resonates for the caregivers at the hospital. Yeah. So. Did you see that coming, the, the ancillary benefit to the staff? There have been so many ancillary benefits that I didn't see coming. I don't know if I have a flawed crystal ball, but that's one of them. And then the other one was just how um, the the huge culture shift that has occurred in the in the Stevens County system in terms of embracing palliative care, empowering the staff on site um, to do palliative care without Greg and me. Um, Greg, Kevin, what are you thinking about this? And what we didn't predict. Edie and I did a in-person visit recently to the two hospitals in Stevens County. And, um, we met with many individuals and there was a meeting that we had, Edie can speak to this more deeply than I, with a charge nurse from the intensive care unit who really talked about how the telepalliative care work has changed some of the broader culture of care. That even when they have patients that they don't refer to palliative care, they have become more attuned to the, the needs of the patients from a palliative care perspective. And so their primary palliative care, not their specialty palliative care, but their primary palliative care inter interactions have really been enhanced. And, and that the work that Amber, Aidy, and I have done have really changed culture at the hospitals. Hmm. Kevin? I think one of the things you would ask that was resonating with me was how do we measure when or if this is a success and the stories really clearly highlight how successful this is for those individuals and when we look at the numbers of patients who frequent these very small hospitals they're not very big they're not very impressive but for that one person it is the entirety of their life. For their family, it is the entirety of their relationship with their mom, their dad, their loved one. And so 
to put it into perspective, we compare it to um, the global good. And palliative care across the country in hospitals averages around 6% of admissions. So if a thousand patients go into a hospital, you know, 6%, 60 of them are seen by um, palliative care. In these hospitals, we immediately hit 10%, and in these two hospitals, currently are floating around 17 to 18% of these admissions being seen by the palliative care team. Wow. It's not because this team is magical or any different. They're fantastic and they are top of license skilled in what they're doing. However, the culture change and the needs of these patients and the access availability, it is real time. Hey, we have questions. Let's click this button and the doctor is there. And so when we're able to yeah. impact that many people and the trajectory of their care, so which direction are we heading? You know, they're all throughout healthcare, there are these crossroads and decision points where do we go this way or do we go that way? And they can be made in real time with all of the information available, as opposed to all of the information we have being the best we can do. You know, the what occurs to me is that if the full weight of the palliative care consult has been missing from these smaller hospitals, that part of the demonstration here is demonstrating to the staff of those hospitals the value of calling in an interdisciplinary team and seeing that it actually benefits the patient. So I could see lots of hospitalists maybe being ignorant prior to this of the value of palliative care and then suddenly being demonstrated that, oh, actually this, this helps my patients. One of the nurse managers for the hospitals in Stevens County during a six month review commented that he was really skeptical he felt like the nurses there were doing such a good job of goal-aligned care, of you know, really discerning what patients wanted and needed, that he felt like this was probably not necessary. Six months in, he said, I am one of your biggest fans now. <laughs> and he really appreciated how distinctly specialty palliative care opens up conversations about what am I understanding about my situation? What options do I have and how do I align the care that I get with what I'm hoping for? And so hearing somebody who said, I really didn't expect this to be all that helpful in six months in now, I'm, I'm one of your biggest fans, was really rewarding. I bet. Um, Dr. Murphy, when we were planning this episode of the podcast, you raised a cautionary note, which I appreciated, which was to to differentiate between um, telepalliative care and making access to goals of care uh, conversations available. And you, you wanted to make uh, the point that these are distinct um, entities. And I'm wondering if you could take a minute to help me understand that. I would defer to the experts in this, but the reason I brought that up in that initial conversation is that every adult likely needs to have a goals of care conversation with their primary care provider. And that can happen simply to be, I'm healthy, I'm well, if I was in an accident, I would want this to happen. I don't want the accident to happen, obviously, but they're pretty simple and straightforward. But as our wellness progresses, 
to illness and or injury, having those conversations more frequently and preemptively become more and more important. There is an old school thinking school that palliative care simply is goals of care and the conflation of those two is a barrier to specialty palliative care being held in its position of specialty, but more importantly, in empowering the primary care physicians, the primary hospitalists to be the front person in those goals of care conversations. Ideally, every patient who comes into the hospital has had a goals conversation with their primary care physician. Ideally, every hospitalist has a goals conversation with their patients before they consider consulting any specialty. And then when the specialty comes in, those goals can be translated and shared so that everybody is aligned and moving in the same direction. I'm going to um, be an advocate here for um, beating down jargon. And there's a way in which goals of care conversation is a term of art that you all use frequently. And some of our listeners have absolutely no clue what you're talking about. Um, and I'm wondering if one of you could just lay it out for me. What, what are you talking about when we talk about every patient should have a goals of care conversation with their primary provider? Well, I'm reminded of when one of my practice partners was talking to our local hospitalist group about goals of care discussions. A hospitalist we work with a lot and respect a lot said, isn't everyone's goal when they come into the hospital to get better? But some people recognize that the problem I have is not one that can be fixed. And so maybe rather than focusing only on getting better, I need to focus on what is the best quality of life I can have. Or if I can't get better, what is the way that the treatment can best meet my needs in this place and time? And so the goals of care conversation is really sussing out what, are, what is your situation medically? What are your values, preferences, and priorities? What are the treatment alternatives? And how do we align the treatments that you receive with the goals that you're hoping for? And so some patients are clearly focused on, I just want to focus on getting better. I want to focus on living as long as I can. I'm not that worried if the treatments really compromise my quality of life as long as they give me more time. Other patients are focused on, I'm really not that interested in more time. I'm focused only on how can I maximize the quality of life for whatever time I have remaining. And so when we talk about goals of care conversations, it's trying to discern where does the person that we're caring for, their family, fit on that spectrum? And then how do we make sure that the treatments they receive are the ones that are most appropriate for what they're hoping for? So as a social worker, when I try to beat down medical jargon, I often say that these conversations are, are a roadmap. It's like, where do we want to go? And what are the different pathways we could take that might get us there or might not? And where are the exit ramps if we don't like where we're heading? Mm -hmm. And so this is a conversation of, okay, if we take the direct route, here, here, here's the benefits of that. Here's some of the costs of that. If we take a more meandering route, what's that going to look like? And so we really want to give people a chance to let us know what the destination is for them 
And then what are the possible ways of getting there? And what are we looking for for not getting there? And hear from them, really, when they would want to revisit that conversation. If it gets so bad that this is happening, hey, let's go have another conversation. Maybe I want to take an, the exit ramp now. And so it is an ongoing, it's not a one and done event. Right. Like all great road trips, you're allowed to change direction along the way. Exactly. And it may not even be because of great catastrophe or, or feeling awful. It may be that after two weeks in the hospital or two weeks under sort of intensive focus and care, you've had time to reflect on what's going on and you want to have that conversation again because you've come up with a different answer to the question of what my goals are. I mean, we're human beings and we're allowed to make changes in the way we think. And isn't life the greatest road trip of all? <laughs> we can also change in the other direction, Sean. My seven-month pregnant daughter um, means that I'm going to hold out for at least another two to three months, and everything that we can do to make that happen is the decision I want right now. Where do you see this going? Is this the new norm, this tele-PC, tele-health? You mentioned, Greg, tele-psychiatry. It certainly seems like a, a page has been turned during the pandemic. Well, already before the pandemic, I talked with primary care providers who had found that a blended in-person telehealth model had actually led to probably deeper relationships with their patients, but also better outcomes. And the examples I'll use is um, they had diabetic patients who, rather than seeing in the office every three months, they would space the in-person visits out to six months, but then they would have monthly telephonic or video check-ins. Hmm. And whether it be hypertension or diabetes, they were seeing that the regular check-ins actually enhanced their overall outcomes. You know, their, their diabetes measures, their hypertension measures were improved compared to just doing the in-person. So I see the future of telehealth being very much a blended model. I don't think telehealth should replace in-person visits for the most part, um, but there are times where the augmentation of the in-person encounters by telehealth can be really meaningful. And then again, the equity issue, AD and I aren't going to be meeting many of the patients in Stevens County in person, but we have found that having some in-person encounter with the uh, nurse, the chaplain, the hospitalist in, in the rural communities has been meaningful and that our being able to then support them by the telehealth encounter um, really is able enabling patients to, to access specialty services they otherwise couldn't and to yep. get the quality of care that they otherwise wouldn't. But it's not an either or. To me, it's a yes and. Yeah. And I would add, Greg, you know, when I'm, you know, if even though I don't have the crystal ball, if I had the magic wand, oftentimes what you and I hear is, oh, can we have this once we leave the hospital? Mm -hmm. And so I think that next big leap, at least specifically for palliative care, is how do we continue to have a seamless transition from the care we've provided in the hospital setting to the outpatient world? And so I'm going to be really curious to see what that looks like. Right. And all of those providers at the critical care hospital have been exposed to it, too. So you've got new advocates for, for the work that you're doing. 
Yeah, I'm hearing an echo from our last episode um, of the podcast, which was on sort of the future of medicine. And uh, the guest was um, a really interesting man named Bertalan Meshko, who is in Hungary, in Budapest. Mm -hmm. And he um, is a genomicist by training, but is spending all of his time doing sort of future thinking on medical issues. And and his, what he told me about AI, sort of narrow AI, was it's not going to replace physicians, but physicians who use AI will replace the physicians who don't. Hmm. Um, so for those people who are afraid of the sort of advent of technology into their relationship with their physician or their provider, you may find that this blended model actually brings the two of you closer. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to escape AI and the use of technology and informatics to guide care. The question is, how do we do that while still maintaining the most humanistic, connected approach to the people we care for as possible? Yeah. And so if it's an augmentation, that's different than if it's a replacement. I'm reminded in the early days of electronic health records that there were some studies that showed the people who were challenged in interpersonal communications, the electronic health record actually made that worse. People who are skilled in interpersonal communications actually found ways to allow the electronic health record to enhance their ability to communicate. They would swing the monitor around, show graphs of your diabetes measurements, your blood pressure measurements, etc., in a way that actually the patients found more useful rather than a distraction or you know, competition with the, being in communication with their provider. And I think to bring it back to the rural community and critical access hospitals, it's particularly that humanistic component of care that makes them want to stay there and avoid the transfer to the larger city that has the latest and greatest of technology, that when it comes down to it, for them, the best medicine is the neighbor's casserole that's delivered to their house and not the high-level MRI, MRI that a hospital can offer in a bigger city. So I really like that AD brought up the interdisciplinary team, and we have to admit that our telepalliative care team beaming into the hospitals is not a full interdisciplinary team. But one of the things that she pointed out, which is worth repeating, is that we partner with the on-site team. So the National Consensus Project is a foundation that sets forth what we define as best known practices in palliative care. And they're in their fourth edition now. It's updated on a regular basis. And it's a very well-rounded resource. Our physician plus social worker beaming into the hospital partners with the nurse, chaplain, and primary care team there, whether it's the hospitalist or the intensive care doctor, and aligns on the same path. Basically, it is the proverbial, everybody's jumping into the same boat and rowing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So the interdisciplinary team is key to this. However, our team is only a portion of that. Empowering the team on the ground to change culture and meet the patients physically where they are is also a huge component of this. The second thing that we talked about a, a few minutes ago is bringing physicians on board is imperative to the 
growth and expansion of palliative care. But not every physician who practices today trained in an environment where palliative care was the norm. So as younger doctors come on board who have trained with palliative care, it is more and more of an expectation. They are easy to bring along with us. It's those who have been practicing for years who have a either misconception or misunderstanding of what is specialty palliative care and sometimes a conflation of it with hospice. And so yeah. it's filling in those gaps. And one of the things that I will just, you know, I'll quote Greg on this. It's about showing up. It's about doing really good work and then demonstrating the difference between what they're expecting and what they actually can receive. We are being invited into this person's life right now in the critical access hospitals. It's not that big of a deal. It's not their home, but this model of care can be used outside of the hospital and will be used outside of the hospital. We have plans and expectations of moving out into the community, whether it's skilled nursing facilities, assisted living, adult family homes, patients, homes, et cetera. And that intimacy of being invited into their home is both welcoming, but also safe for them. Remember that the palliative care patient is not the most healthy of patients and the effort of getting up in the morning, getting prepped for a trip to the clinic, putting on their Sunday best to come in and show off how well they're doing to their doctor is an effort and a chore. Just the walk to the car and the, from the car to the clinic can be taxing and overwhelming. This gets rid of all of those. And so the ease of access to the patient is something that I think is going to be so well received that this is going to be impossible to get rid of, not just should it continue. It's it's going to be, you know, get on the train because the freight the the freight train's leaving. I want to thank all three of you for the time that you devoted to this podcast today. I'm really grateful. The demonstration project that you're doing is really interesting. And I um I'm gonna look forward to keeping in touch with the three of you and seeing how it progresses. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to have the chance to talk with you about this. This is a work, a labor of love for all of us. And so we've been really uh, gratified to see that uh, something that we conceptualized a few years ago in reality has had such a meaningful impact for the patients and families that we care for. That's Greg Van de Keef. He's the executive medical director for the Palliative Practice Group at the Providence Institute for Human Caring. We also heard from Kevin Murphy, the executive director of the Palliative Practice Group and TelePC, and from Adie Goldberg, licensed clinical social worker and the TelePC social worker for the demonstration project in Northeast Washington State. I want to circle back now to a conversation that you heard a bit of at the beginning of the program. Amber Moody is the palliative care nurse at Providence Mount Carmel Hospital in Colville, Washington. She is the nurse at the bedside during the telepc visits with um, Greg and with Aidy. She has day-to-day contact with patients in the hospital. She's in conversation here with Kelly Corcoran, who's the chief mission officer there in Colville. 
Let's listen into a little bit more of their conversation about rural health care. My personal philosophy with rural health is in being rural, our services should be just as exceptional as a hospital in the heart of Chicago. And so sending you to um, your palliative care certification world, as well as the chaplain, is really a gift. And I think it, it both professionalizes how you're viewed in the hospital, but also hones in on your skill set. So could you speak to maybe some specifics about that training? The first was the um, palliative care nurse certification through the Shirley Institute out of California. And I was able to join a 12-week online, basically a college credit type class set up um, where you have weekly homework and assignments and you go through every body system and, and every scenario that you can think of. But instead of just going through a body system as a nurse, you're going through this as a palliative care nurse. You change your mindset. You are, you're caring for the whole patient. It's holistic. You have a team behind you. And so for me, being a nurse for 14 years, to be able to shift my brain, not just to, you know, I have meds to give, I have this, I have that. And, you know, I got to shift to, oh, this patient has family that can't come in. And now how do you assess heart failure? And they have all these other needs and they're rural and maybe they're ready for hospice. And so it shifted your train of thought to just a very clinical diagnose, treat mindset to the bigger picture. And um, after that certification, I've used so many techniques that they taught me, um, then studied and was able to take the uh, national certification for certified palliative and hospice nurse. Um, For me, again, it was just a big transition in mindset. You know, we dose the same medications, but we have different, a different mindset. We are wanting our patient comfortable. And, and if that's outside the box of the regular dose of medication, that's what the patient needs. That's okay. And, um, you know, we can get on cap C through the hospital and we can indulge ourselves in videos and conferences and just really immerse yourself in the world of palliative care because it it is a specialty. It's, it's, it's its own place of, you know, divine, compassionate care for patients and their family, you know, and, and being able to bring our team in through telehealth, um, it benefits us as staff too. These are trained specialists. These are people that have had years of experience in palliative care. And so to work with them, you want to be at that higher level. You want to work hard to certify to know the most up-to-date things to do for your patient. And so the, the chaplain, Chaplain Gretchen and I are just blessed to be able to live rural, but jump into these huge trainings and national certifications um, and then bring it back to the patients in our county. You know, the other thing is, is the skill set is a skill set that can be learned. The, um, the language It's a whole new dialect of language, so to speak, with palliative care, but it's also a relationship-based care. And so the psychosocial dynamics of who we are as individuals, who our patients are as individuals, what we think is best, what the science says, 
what the family weighs in with, where is the patient in all this, what does the patient really want versus what is the patient agreeing to. There's all those relationship nuances. And the, uh, the other piece of that is the ongoing relationship with the staff. And so that's not only boots on the ground, face-to-face, but it's charting. So Amber, can you speak to um, your experiences of shifting relationship nuances with the physicians and with other nursing and you know the whole care team, but also how the ways and the methods that you chart have evolved with telehealth? Absolutely. It's definitely relationship-based. You know, we, um, we work with the hospitalist at both hospitals. And to see these patients, you know, we, we need an order to see these patients. And so we need either the physicians or the nurses to say, I know there's a palliative care team here and this patient has needs that I think they can help with. Um, that's been an, an evolving thought process because previously, if you put a referral in, you got a nurse that came, visited the patient, and it kind of stopped there. Um, now we have pharmacists that are palliative trained. We have a physician. We have social workers. We have chaplains on board. And so trying to build the relationship with the people that are putting our orders in is huge. You have to have, you have to know what you're offering them, and then they have to know. And so you have to build relationships and be at the meetings and follow the patient census and be on the floor and, you know, speak with the nurses and say, I see that your patient has, you know, heart failure and, and a new lung tumor. Do you think they'd be good for palliative care? Because I do, and here's why. And so not just building the relationship, but, but educating. There's, there's palliative care at a higher level, and it's now available here. And for me, it's really exciting to look through the computer and see orders that nurses are putting in or pharmacists are putting in because that's never how it used to be. It used to only come from the physician. And now we've got people thinking and talking about, hey, we have palliative care here and, and they can help us with this. And so building those relationships and then having people know that we'll follow through has just been so important. Absolutely. So I can't say enough of the skill set and the love that Amber brings to not just what she does, but how she does it. I mean, who she is informs how she provides her care. And it has certainly given permission to the physicians to um, enhance, I'm going to say, how they, their way of being with their patients. And it might seem, well, yeah, the physicians are with the patients anyway, but it truly is a, a different way of being. It's a different approach for physicians to come into evaluating a patient based on a relational um, scope and sequence of how this patient is in life. People that live in this community have made a choice to be here and they shouldn't have to give up quality health care because they want to live rural. And so in 2022, it's our duty to bring that care to patients. And I feel like, I feel like we nailed it. I feel like you have to bring the quality care, the compassion, 
the wraparound services to your patient where they're at. And, and it's a different level of care when you make the step to do that. That's Amber Moody, palliative care nurse at Providence Mount Carmel Hospital in Colville, Washington, speaking with Kelly Corcoran, who's the chief mission officer there in Colville. They recorded a Hear Me Now conversation. You can see an extended cut of that on our website. Just visit us at hearmenowpodcast.org. I want to wrap up uh, this hour of the program by hearing from two people in leadership at the Providence Institute for Human Caring, Drs. Matt Gonzalez and Ira Bayak recently presented at a Humanizing Healthcare Expert series online. This is audio from that presentation, which also included video. So if you um, can forgive the fact that there are occasional visual references, I would like you to hear these two leaders talk a little bit about some of the core values that are driving this move towards telepc and i learned and uh, years ago and have taught for years the opportunity to say at least four things to one another before you're forced to say goodbye please forgive me i forgive you thank you and i love you it's never too soon to say these words Additionally, I also learned early on in my work in in medicine as a uh, family doc and later as a hospice and palliative care doc that this notion of well-being through the end of life is not simply pop psychology or, you know, sort of woo-woo medicine, but really part of the human endowment. I learned this not from a book or something that I read, but from my dad. Dad hated the fact that he was ill, hated the, the knowledge that he was dying. And I can tell you from spending so much time with him during these months that my dad was also well within himself, well with his family, well during the time that we would consider him dying. I learned early on that relationships are essential for human well-being and never more so than when people are in life-threatening situations. Lastly, um, I also learned and have written about the, the importance uh, and the sort of the pinnacle of honoring and celebrating life and relationships. It, this is something that, you know, even mortality cannot take from us. Uh, we have the potential to honor and celebrate life and relationships through the end of life to remind us all that we're, we're caring for a whole person, somebody who has a full life, a rich life, and human potential, even now, even if they are unable to speak or tell their stories, they can be honored and celebrated. They can be waked out of life, to, to use that Irish term of a, of a wake. You needn't wait till somebody is, is, uh, has departed to, to get to this full range of human caring, to allow people to know they will not be forgotten, that we love them, that we honor their memory, uh, the privilege of being related to them, and we celebrate our family, our lives, and relationships. You know, when we began, we showed this Chinese character for crisis, danger and opportunity. We realized that during this crisis, we, there were opportunities, and one of them was to drive our telepalliative care nascent program, which was a pilot. 
I, you know, this work is just so impressive to me. Certainly um, hats off to Kevin Murphy and Greg Vandekeef for leading this effort. Uh, it's so powerful and important and a novel way of developing, de delivering rather palliative care. Having proactive goals of care conversations by trying to understand what mattered to patients and families and then delivering on them, being able to operationalize those in plans. And our palliative practice group has done a tremendous job of being able to support these teams by using different tools, by being able to show their data to them, to being able to give them the ability to see and understand where they have opportunities in terms of the number of consults they see, how early they see folks and how to think about decreasing the unmet need of palliative care patients within our hospitals. I'm proud to say that over the last number of years that with the help of the PPG, we have seen palliative care consultations grow and grow tremendously. On this blue line, you'll see the penetration, which is really a measure nationally that's used that looks at how often or what the percent is of the non-OB adult admissions to a hospital are seen by a palliative care team. Nationally, it's about 5%. You'll see that we're approaching 10% across all of Providence. And we're not doing that by burning people out. We're doing that by adding people. We're recognizing that by adding FTE, particularly uh, not just physicians, but also the robust interdisciplinary team, chaplains, nurses, social workers, that we can, by doing that, allow us to be able to grow not only our penetration, and but the good work that our palliative care teams do. That's Dr. Matt Gonzalez, Associate Vice President and Chief Medical and Operations Officer for the Providence Institute for Human Caring. We also heard from Dr. Ira Bayak, Senior Vice President for Strategic Innovation and the founder of the Providence Institute for Human Caring, which, by the way, produces this podcast. This is the Hear Me Now podcast. We're on the web at hearmenowpodcast.org. The program is produced by Scott Acord, Melody Fawcett, and Victoria Johnson. Our executive producer is Mike Drummond. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins. So glad you listened. Thanks for joining us. Be well. Just a reminder that our next Humanizing Healthcare Expert Series is coming up in June. We'll focus on telepalliative care. For more information and to register, Visit www.instituteforhumancaring, that's all one word, .org. That's instituteforhumancaring.org. See you there.